you may have noticed that we ended on a song that we don't usually end on heading into prayer. Um, We ended on a real upbeat song. How weird is that, huh? Um, But I think that the the scope of the songs that we just sang really cover this season that we have stepped into this morning, this season of Advent, where we are recognizing that we, we need Jesus to come, right? Even so come, Lord Jesus, come. We are waiting for Christ, and yet we also recognize that Christ has come, that our God saves, our God has sent a Savior, that we might rejoice in that, and so we are in this tension that we're going to be talking about um, throughout our sermon this morning. But as we enter into this time of prayer, um, I want us to recognize that tension that we hold, where we are recognizing that Christ has come, and we celebrate that, but we are also recognizing that our world is not perfect. By no means is our world perfect. The circumstances of our life are not great sometimes. They might even be terrible sometimes. But in, this, in those highs and lows of life, we don't find our foundation in the circumstances. We find our foundation in the God that we believe in, the God who saves. And that is what we are relying on as we move into this time of prayer. Um, in our bulletins, there's a prayer sheet for you to be aware of, of, of the prayer requests that we have that are, are new um, and are ongoing and the, the people that are in need and the people we are rejoicing with Um, which just continues to tie into this theme of the already and the not yet. So as we enter into this time of prayer, um, let's be keeping that fresh in our minds. Dear Heavenly Father, you are holy, you are good, you are gracious and merciful. And you alone can offer us the hope that the world around us seems to lack far too often. The hope that God doesn't rest in uh, the circumstances of life that doesn't rest in whether or not we are feeling good or not, but the hope that lies in Jesus Christ, the hope that lies in a God who is always faithful, a God who never changes, a God that can handle all of the flack that we give him when our life is not great and can handle all of the Ignoring that we offer when life is good and we are celebrating. God, we confess those moments when we don't turn those things over to you. And God, this morning we present those to you. We lay them at your feet. God, for whoever in this room is is struggling or is suffering, is in pain, is in need of healing, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual, God, we ask that you would intervene. God, that you would come, that you are the God who saves, not just saves us from this, that, or the other, but, but steps into our specific situations and can offer us redemption and restoration. And God, we confess that there have been times that we celebrate ourselves and we celebrate our own accomplishments more than we celebrate your blessings and your goodness. And God, we turn those over to you also this morning for those who are rejoicing at um, good news, at positive test results, at, um, at healing and, and well-being and um, a Christmas bonus, God, whatever it is, we offer up our celebrations and our graciousness, our gratefulness to you, God, 
because you are the God who provides, you are the God who sustains, you are the God who saves. And we lean into that this morning. In your name we pray, amen. All righty, well, welcome to Advent. And welcome to uh, this time of year when the church, perhaps maybe even more obviously than other times of the year, the church looks a little bit different and acts a little bit different. Um, Because Advent is a time of waiting. And if you know much about the uh, culture around us when it comes to Christmas time, it's not about waiting. It's hard to wait, right? Nobody likes waiting. But while the rest of the world buzzes around us and plans and executes all of these Christmas parties and Christmas get-togethers and is decorating and is shopping and spending, nobody wants to admit how much money on gifts, we act differently. The church acts differently. We wait. We wait for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. We wait for the return of Jesus Christ We wait as a spiritual practice of uniting with those who waited and waited and waited for hundreds of years, for generations and generations for God to deliver them. We wait. We wait as this spiritual practice of remembering that our world is not perfect. Our world is not as it should be. And it won't be until the Messiah returns. So maybe before I even get into our text this morning, maybe this is your challenge for you sitting there looking at me right now. Maybe this is your challenge to during this week or this season, as we wait for Christmas to be a little bit more intentional about patience and waiting and saying, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to put my lights up yet. Not just because I'm too busy to do that, but because I, it's a spiritual practice of waiting, 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 waiting. It's no fun, but it is a spiritual practice. It is a spiritual gift to have patience. And during this season of Advent, we are going to talk a lot about that, especially today, because this is the first of our four weeks of the Advent themes, um, which are hope. Let's see. I have them in order. I need to get them in order. Hope, peace, love, and joy. This first week of hope is all about this waiting idea. But these, these themes of hope, peace, love, and joy are woven throughout scripture as traits that the people of God embody, that the people of God take on as we wait for Christ. And this year, we're going to be doing it a little bit different, um, similar in that it's the same themes, but different in the sense that we're doing this sermon series called Sound Doctrine, Do You Hear What I Hear? And we are going to be looking at um, these important themes through the lens of scripture, but also through the lens of some common Christmas songs, Christmas carols, Christmas hymns that we sing that you may have heard many, many times before. Um, If you were with us last year, uh, well, I guess, was it this year? This calendar year, January and February of this year, um, we did a series called Sound Doctrine, and we did kind of the regular worship songs. These are These are also worship songs, but we did worship songs that are not Christmas-themed. But this year, we are doing them Christmas-themed, and these are carols that we all know and love and have sung a bunch of times and sometimes might uh, be a little bit too much in the habit of singing that we don't actually think about the words, and that is what this series is all about, is helping us really hone in on what are we actually singing? What are these truths that we are, are declaring 
when we sing these songs, and do we actually believe them? Um, But if you're worried, I promise we're still talking about this thing. We're still talking about scripture. We're still preaching from this. That's our job. We're not preaching songs. We're preaching scripture. Um, So, I've already talked too much about our series. So let's get to the really good stuff. Would you, if you are willing and able, stand with me as we um, read from God's word this morning from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. The Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify himself. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore formerly deserted places. They will renew ruined cities, places deserted in generations past. Foreigners will stay and shepherd your sheep, and strangers will be your farmers and vine dressers. They will be called the priests of the Lord, the ministers of our God. They will say about you, you will feed on the wealth of nations and fatten yourself on their riches. Instead of shame, their portion will be double. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. They will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and dishonesty. I will faithfully give them their wage and make with them an enduring covenant. Their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people blessed by the Lord. I surely rejoice in the Lord. My heart is joyful because of my God, because he has clothed me with clothes of victory wrapped me in a robe of righteousness like a bridegroom in a priestly crown and like a bride adorned in jewelry. As the earth puts out its growth and as a garden grows its seeds, so the Lord God will grow righteousness and praise before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. That's a lot of words, so I need a drink of water. All right. How many of you have heard of this, it, it's a social media kind of an idea, have heard of the term Instagram versus reality. Raise your hand. A few of you. Okay, a few of you. Instagram versus reality, it basically uh, it portrays this idea that the image you put out on social media is very different from the real life behind it. Or how I like to think of it, at least in the context of our sermon today, um, is the contrast between what life actually looks like and what this ideal life could look like or would look like. And so I have a few examples for you, uh, partially because it applies to what we're talking about, but also because I like to have fun. So this is an example of a picture that would be posted on Instagram. And this is the reality behind the picture. There's another one. There's the reality. A girl and her dog. A girl being kissed by her dog. 
<laughs> and one more. Instagram versus reality. <laughs> the book of Isaiah, as I read it, can feel like Instagram versus reality a lot. There are these beautiful and poetic parts of it where it talks about the Lord's goodness and abundance and freedom and peace and this absence of conflict and war that is coming. And then there's the actual reality of the people of Israel. And Isaiah details a lot about the reality of the people of Israel and their sinfulness and their destruction. But it also speaks of this incredible hope that we can have and that the people of Israel can have, um, that they could have in the awaiting of the coming Messiah and that we can have in the awaiting of the coming Messiah. So our, our passage this morning, um, it was likely written in a time after the Israelites had been freed from exile. So the, the Persian king Cyrus, he they defeat Babylon and he says to the exiles, he says, go home and, and rebuild your city, rebuild your temple. And the, the mourning and the hopelessness that we find in our passage this morning, that we find the Israelites in, it's not quite the same as where they were at earlier in the book, the scroll of Isaiah. Um, earlier in it, they were more in shock and they were horrified at what had happened and what was happening to um, the city of Jerusalem, to their holy city, to their temple, to their, their nation, to the people of Israel. It was all destroyed. And they had this kind of sense of fear and this dread as they were marched off into exile and a very, very, very uncertain future. But the grief that arises out of this frustration and this humiliation in our text today comes more from their failure to then rebuild that city and to rebuild the temple to match its former glory. It comes out of this failure to reconcile some of the economic um, disparities and the religious and the political factions that had been cropping up inside the city. The reality was that this life in Jerusalem that they thought God had promised them, that they had been told would happen, that they expected when they returned this life was not going as well as they thought. It was looking nothing like this restored Jerusalem and this righteous community and this unity that had been foretold and proclaimed by the prophets and envisioned by the people who were first returning back to Jerusalem. But through the prophet Isaiah and through this scroll, God is speaking and describing this coming king, this coming Messiah the one who would come to restore all of that, who would come to make all things new and right and whole. And in the midst of this very dismal reality that they have, God is showing them kind of that ideal, that Instagram of what life could be, of what life will be, what is coming for them. And in Isaiah 61, what we just read, the prophet is offering God's people this vision for this restored World Where this land is flourishing, people are living in right relationship with one another. They're living in right relationship with God. And it begins with these words, the Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has appointed me. The speaker calls himself anointed, which is a word 
that comes from the Hebrew word, I'm sure I'm not saying this right, Mashiach. Mike can correct me later. Uh, It comes from that Hebrew word, which is where we get the word Messiah. So in this portion of Isaiah, and right at the beginning of our text this morning, um, the speaker is actually this coming Messiah, the one who is, is being sent. The, the words are coming through the words of the prophet. The coming Messiah is speaking through the prophet. And the Messiah is preaching of this new day when, when these new people, this liberated people, will bring into existence his new, his redeemed creation. And so from the first verse, we jump to the last verse real quick because the final lines of this poem, um, they use this beautiful imagery to describe kind of Israel as kind of this new um, garden of Eden. It says, as the earth puts out its growth and as a garden grows its seeds, so the Lord God will grow righteousness and praise before all the nations. Which sounds great, right? That sounds wonderful. That sounds Instagram worthy right there. If you guys don't know what Instagram is, I'm sorry. I, I think this is the last time I'm talking about it. We'll, we'll move on from that analogy. Um, but Israel at this, at this time is a nation that does not have a whole lot of wealth. It doesn't have a whole lot of power or autonomy even. They are in pretty deep and grieving. It's a, it's a deep grieving kind of a time. They're in mourning. And for many of the Israelites during this time, they have started to kind of lose faith in God, to lose hope in God. Things had been so bleak for so long for so many of their people that they just thought there, there couldn't be reason to continue to hope in a God that felt that absent from them. And I think a lot of us have probably felt that at some point. Maybe you're feeling it right now. Where the circumstances of life just aren't measuring up to what your expectations were. The reality of life is just beating you down rather than building you up to this picture that you thought God had painted for you, that God had promised to you. Life doesn't look like you thought it would. Life doesn't look like what you thought God wanted it to. And this is where a lot of the people of Israel are living. But among these Israelites who are in grief and mourning, there is a small group that has not yet lost hope in God's promises. And this poem that we read in Isaiah 61 is written to encourage this group of people who still has hope, who still has faith, who still believes in a God that is coming, a God that is coming to save, to deliver the people. And the Messiah says that through God's spirit, he is going to bring about seven acts of this new creation. If you, if you count all of the, the lines that start with two, there are seven acts of this new creation. And if you remember the seven, the number seven throughout scripture is this number. It's not necessarily always just, you know, counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but it's, it's used symbolically as this image of perfection, of completion, of wholeness. And so the Messiah is speaking about this day when the new creation will be whole and complete and perfect. When this new creation will be restored and the misfortunes and the the troubles of God's people will be renewed. But we can't mistake these things to just be ways that God's people are going to have a good life or a better life. Each of these seven acts of new creation are specific undoing of what has gone wrong. A specific undoing of what has, has corrupted this 
creation in the first place, which is sin. These seven acts are an undoing of the damage of sin. This new creation is not just brand new. It's not God's just going to the store and getting a new one. God is redeeming and renewing and restoring what has been broken, what has been lost, what has been tarnished by sin. And so we're going to go through not all of them extensively, but uh, some of them. He has sent me, that's again, the Messiah is speaking. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor. This is more than just being poor financially. Um, it's Poverty is something that extends beyond just the money in your pocket. It's the possessions that you have. It's the, the spirit that you have. It's your hope. It's your joy. It's your strength. And sin, the effects of sin make us poor. Sin exhausts us. Sin drains us. It weakens us. But the Messiah is sent to bring good news to the poor. Good news that speaks into the heart of our poverty. Good news that redeems. The Messiah says he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Heartbreak was a reality for the people of Israel. I think we covered that just a minute ago. Right? Their, their past and their present is marked by how sin has broken their hearts, has broken their relationships with all sorts of people and with God. But the Messiah is sent to bind up the brokenhearted. In the places where sin has, has broken these relationships and broken these hearts, the Messiah binds up or bandages up, brings healing and health and wholeness to what has been broken. The Messiah has sent me to pro- the Messiah has been sent to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners. Captivity, again, was a reality for the people of Israel. They, they understood that, what it meant physically, spiritually, captivity. Sin holds us captive, right? Sin infects our thoughts and our desires and our emotions and our actions. Sin makes us believe that we will never be free, that we cannot find freedom, that whatever we have done is always going to affect us. But the Messiah is sent to bring freedom, to liberate us from that captivity of sin, of death, of failure, of suffering, of guilt and shame. The Messiah is sent to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. This is in reference to, excuse me, did I skip one? I skipped one in my slides, I apologize. The Messiah is sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to proclaim this day of vindication for our God. This is a reference to um, an ancient Israelite practice, the year of Jubilee, which is meant to happen every seven times seven Years, that is. Um, it is a time when everything kind of resets. So slaves are freed. Prisoners are freed. All debts are canceled. Um, land that has been taken is returned to the, the rightful owners. And this is a radical practice that is a sign that points toward this renewed creation, this new creation that the Messiah is bringing about. It's, it speaks of this kind of ultimate year of Jubilee. But then 
the second half of that is a day of vindication, a day of vengeance. Because if you set everything right again, it also involves reversing what has gone wrong. And for those who are benefactors of what has gone wrong, those who are the ones who oppress and enslave and do things that are unjust, this ultimate jubilee is going to feel a lot more like revenge than it is like blessing. So the Messiah is sent to proclaim the year of jubilee and to proclaim the day when Christ will return to vindicate and to establish this new and perfect creation. And that is that tension of Advent, that Christ has come. We, rec- we are in this kind of year of jubilee in between, and yet Christ is coming again for this day of vindication. And now we move on to this portion that has this clothing imagery. Um, mourners being clothed with a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, and a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. After all of these promises of what life would look like when they returned from exile, the people of Israel were in mourning because life didn't measure up to that. Their holy city was gone. Their return was less than glorious and life was still pretty difficult. Sin has this tendency to beat us down, to wear us out, to take us lower and deeper than we ever could have imagined and than we ever think we could escape from. But the Messiah is sent to care and comfort for those who mourn. And not only that, to provide, to lift up. This is the comfort that we can have in our grief, but it's also provision in the face of our grief. This is restoration. Restoration and newness that the Messiah illustrates in this final act of the new creation. And this uh, heaping... Heaping piles of ashes on one's head is a, is a way that would signify mourning. It's, it's something that mourners would do commonly. And instead of that, it says that they receive this crown in place of ashes and oil of joy. They are anointed with this oil. In the giving of these gifts, the Messiah is taking what is broken, what is beyond human repair, and restoring it, not only restoring it back to just baseline okayness, but restoring it to this, to the, to the sense of this anointing, anointing with oil, clothing with crowns and jewels. And it takes us to this next portion of our text of this poem, which is all about the role that the anointed ones, the anointed people of this new creation will have in bringing about restoration. It says that they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore formerly deserted places. They will renew ruined cities, places deserted in generations past. To rebuild, the words rebuild and restore and renew are in there. And if that does not typify the character of God, I don't know what does. To rebuild, to restore, to renew. God is not in the business of scrapping everything and just restarting from scratch. God is in the business of restoring and renewing. And the character of God that does so is embodied in the person of the Messiah, the person who we know as Jesus Christ. And as a result, then, this new creation 
the people of God are given this anointing, are given this restoration, and it is embodied in the new creation. These anointed ones are now the ones who will rebuild, who will restore, who will renew what has been broken. And that hopeful image is followed by another reversal of sorts. Foreigners will stay and shepherd your sheep and strangers will be your farmers and vine dressers. So instead of being slaves to other nations, like they were for a long time, God will turn the tables and now those nations will serve as the anointed ones. And isn't that just fantastic payback, right? Get them. The ones who were beaten down and oppressed and enslaved are now on top. And they get to, to let those other people know, like, this is how you made us feel, by doing it to them. We celebrate stories like that. I've seen movies. I've seen that story. But that's not what this means. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the people of God. That's not the way of God. We are not defined by revenge and retribution. We are defined by the words of Jesus to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And if we look at these next lines, we see this imagery that at, at first glance seems like, yes, vengeance. It turns into this thing that's not about masters and slaves. He says, you will be called the priests of the Lord, ministers of our God, they will say about you. In those days, priests were the ones who served the nation on behalf of God. They were servants of God and they acted as sort of a bridge between God and the people. And so instead of revenge and payback for these people who had been so cruel to them, they are bridging this gap back to God. They are being the bridge back to God. They are servants of the new creation. And instead of shame, their portion will be double. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. They will possess a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. They will move from this sin and this shame and disgrace and they will move into joy and it even says everlasting joy. Their land will no longer be this land of wilderness, but a land of abundance. It's the ultimate new creation. And towards, towards the end of, of this chapter, God himself speaks up and says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and dishonesty. I will faithfully give them their wage and make them an enduring covenant. God is reminding them once again of his character. God is a God of justice and God is a God of faithfulness. This is the covenant that God has made with Israel to bless the nations. That's, that's what God is being faithful to. Regardless of, of what it looks like on the surface and the difficulty of life that they're going through and the ways that it does not meet their expectations, God is being faithful to his promise, to his covenant. Their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants among the people. All who see them will recognize that they are a people blessed by the Lord. This is the offspring, the seed that is going to become this new garden, that is going to bring life to the world. And we get to this final part of the poem, and it concludes with the Messiah celebrating 
what God, what Yahweh is doing in the world. I surely rejoice in the Lord. My heart is joyful because of my God. And then he describes why he's rejoicing. He uses these clothing images that, that link back to earlier in the poem. The anointed one is this ultimate priest depicted here as both bride and groom in this kind of wedding, ultimate wedding celebration. And the new creation is depicted as this great wedding feast that is happening where God's generous love is shared all around the world. And we arrive back at this garden image as the earth puts out its growth and as a garden grows its seeds, so the Lord God will grow righteousness and praise before all the nations. A garden that is sprouting these seed plants. But it's not just an ordinary garden, right? It doesn't say that, that a garden is, is growing apples. What is this garden growing? What are these plants growing? Righteousness and praise. Righteousness, right relationship between God and humanity. This new creation that the Messiah points to is righteousness, is right relationship, renewed relationship amongst all the people and amongst all humanity and God. Renewed relationship, restored relationship. For the people of Israel, this Messiah and this new creation were promised by God through the words of of his prophets for many generations before. They waited a long, long time through a whole lot of grief and frustration and pain and suffering and confusion and, and all of it. And a majority of them never saw the coming of the Messiah in their lifetime. For them, these words brought hope that even in the midst of all of this muck of life, God, the God who is the deliverer was still at work. Even as their circumstances got worse and worse and, and got worse than they could have ever possibly imagined, they could have hope. They could choose this hope because they believed so deeply in the God who offered them this hope. They believed that their God was a God of rebuilding, of restoration, of renewal. And in times like that, it might be a, my eternal optimist talking, but in times of, of just extreme pain and grief, what incredible opportunities it is to choose that hope. Incredible opportunity to choose to believe in this God that the worse it gets, the more opportunity there is for God to rebuild and to restore and to renew. And the words of Isaiah 61 here are a poem of that kind of hope. So from our 21st century perspective, we look back on this. We look back on the people of Israel. We remember with them. We wait with them. And yet we also see it from our perspective, from our point of view, this tension that we hold in Advent, where we remember those generations who waited with anticipation, who went through terrible, terrible things, but who waited and waited and hoped and hoped. We remember them, and yet we also recognize that we live on this side of history. We live on the side of history where we know the identity of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. We know that he was, that he was born in a manger in a stable. We know that he lived this perfect and sinless and holy life. We know that he was put to death for our sake. 
because of us, for us. We know that he died on the cross, that he rose again to, to prove that he had power and victory over sin and death so that we might have victory over sin and death. We know the identity of this promised Messiah because in Luke chapter four, Jesus actually quotes from this exact text from Isaiah 61. He proclaims, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he follows it up with saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So we know, we know that this coming Messiah has come. And yet we wait and we anticipate his return. We lean on this character of God that we believe in, a God of faithfulness, of goodness, restoration, of renewal. We put our faith in a God that just as Jesus promised, the Messiah will one day return again to fully establish this new creation that the people of God strive for. And so we live in this waiting of Advent and this tension of Advent. And if you like Venn diagrams, I made one. We are in the already and the not yet. That's us. It's not the U.S. That's us. Right in the center of the already and the not yet. We remember back and we wait with God's people. Recognizing what has already happened, that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ has already come. But we also look forward and we know that there are things that have not yet happened. That the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is coming again. And that tension is where we live in Advent. That tension is, is what we sing about when we sing some of the songs. And when we sing specifically the song that we're looking at today, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And you may have noticed that we're going a little bit old school today. We're going a little bit old school throughout this whole series. And it, I apologize if it's an insult to say old school. I love hymnals. So if you pick up a hymnal, there should be a bookmark in there on number 181, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. If you need a hymnal, there's some more up here in the front. Um, this hymn, it's written by a man that some of you may have heard of. Some of you may know some of his other tunes. A man by the name of Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was born in the year 1707, and he was the 18th child of Susanna and Samuel Wesley. He is the younger brother of a man you also may have heard of, John Wesley, who is a large theological influence in the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, and from a young age, Charles and John, the Wesley brothers, were very focused on scripture. They were focused on holy living. They were often mocked because they um, ran Bible studies and prayer groups and, and just had a very um, disciplined lifestyle. And in 1738, um, when Charles was 31 years old, both John and Charles had separate um, deep religious experiences um, and their lives were transformed. And for Charles, that meant that he had this renewed determination to share the gospel, to spread the gospel. And it was around that time that he began to write these poetic hymns that he is now largely known for. 
And a few years later, in 1744, he looked around at the state of the world around him. He was in um, Britain at the time. He looked around and he saw orphans. And he saw this great class divide. And he was struck by the words, he, was, he returned to the words of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, that say, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And this verse and the verses around it speak to this image of God's house being renewed and restored. They speak of this new creation. Wesley longed for Jesus, longed for the Messiah to return, the author of this new creation, not only to return, but to be made real in the lives and the hearts of those around him, to be made real in the midst of the, of the very real pain and suffering that he was looking around and seeing. The words to this hymn were first published as a prayer of his, and then he kind of adapted them and added a tune later on. Um, and it's believed to be one of the first, if not the first, hymns that he wrote. And it was published in a collection of hymns later that year called Hymns on the Nativity of Our Lord. And this collection was, was made up of hymns that were all focused on the birth of Jesus Christ. And while I really, really want to uh, go through all of the lines of this, I just did that with the scripture, so I won't subject you to that. Um, but there, these the words of this song, the lyrics of this song have incredibly deep theology as a lot of Christmas songs do. I hope you'll find that out with us. Um, but not only do they just have, have good ideas, they, they point many of them, whether they're direct quotations or just um, direct references to a lot of scripture. They are very um, founded in deep, good old fashioned biblical truth. So what I hope we see in the lyrics of this hymn is that it is written for a people like us who are in this already and not yet tension. It was originally written and included with songs that were about the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, but if we look a little bit deeper, I don't, I don't think that Wesley, it's pretty obvious, I would say, that Wesley is not just writing about the first coming of Christ. Wesley is looking beyond that. He's using these lyrics to illustrate the Christian's longing for this new creation, this longing for Christ to return. And some of, uh, there are some newer versions of this song. There's a couple of verses actually that were added back in 1990 um, and were inserted kind of in between the two that you'll see in your hymnals and that we'll sing. Um, but in these two that are original to Wesley, we see this dual nature of Advent, where we remember Christ's first coming and we pray for his return. The first stanza recalls the Advent prophecies of the Old Testament, and the second stanza is this prayer for this new creation, for Christ's rule and reign to be made real in our hearts and in our lives. And so before we um, get to singing it, I want us to listen to it. And then I'm going to talk through just some of the, the big, larger scale themes, um, and we'll continue on. But as we listen to it, the words will be on the screen. You have the words in your hymnal. Um, don't be hearing this song as just like, oh yeah, I know this song. Be hearing it as if you were hearing it fresh. Be focusing on the words and what they mean and what they reveal about the God that they sing about. So let's listen together. <laughs> 
so good this song speaks to this waiting that defined the people of Israel and this waiting that defines us now as we wait for Messiah and while the word hope only shows up one time in the lyrics of this song I personally can't help but see that theme of hope just splashing out of every line of this of this hymn Wesley continually directs us to acknowledge the reason that Christ came, the reason the Messiah came to redeem, to deliver, to save, to set us free from our sin, from our shame, from our guilt, our fears. He calls us all to make sure that the hope of our salvation is not in ourselves, is not in our own strength, but that our hope for salvation is in Jesus, the Messiah alone. The only place that we can go for refuge, for rest, for restoration and redemption from our sins is Jesus Christ. And he reminds us that the Messiah, that Jesus is the only one who can truly answer the need, the deepest need of all of our hearts, that he is the only hope of salvation for all the world, for all people. When our hearts long for this peace that our world definitely cannot deliver, these words that Wesley has written remind us that we truly long for peace with God, for reconciliation with God, for communion with God, as we were created to be. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can restore us to that, who can bridge that gap back to full communion with God. Jesus' work is to establish his reign and his rule in his people. His purpose is to bring about this new creation, to bring about the kingdom of God, and we sang about it earlier, right? In the, Jesus, let your kingdom come here. 
Let your will be done here in us. King of heaven, come down. King of heaven, come now. Let your glory reign, shining like the day. King of heaven, come. We sang about that probably multiple times. And in this song that we're going to sing together in just a minute, I think my favorite line is rule in all our hearts alone. Rule in all our hearts alone. It's this appeal for Christ to be the only Lord of our lives, for Christ to be the only one who defines our thoughts and our decisions and our emotions and our opinions and our actions. It's not easy. I struggle with it on the daily. But the words that we sing don't always have to be these declarations of of where we're at. We don't have to be all cleaned up and ready to go in order to sing these words. These words can be sung as God rule in my heart right here, right now. I want, I want it. Sometimes the words that we sing and the prayers we pray are just declarations of where we hope to be, of where we ask God to help us get. We sing it asking for God to step in, to intervene in our lives and to make it true of us. And Wesley here gives us those words to sing. We call Christ to be that complete ruler of our entire lives, that we would live as if he were our only master, our only Lord. Because only Jesus can do it. We are inadequate. The world around us is inadequate. Only the work of Jesus, only the perfection of Jesus, only the obedience of Jesus can save us. Our qualities, our attributes, our strengths, our personalities, none of it is going to measure up. And so those are the words that we are going to sing, that we are going to declare wherever we are at together in just a minute when we sing, come thou long expected Jesus. But first we're going to participate in another act of worship, another way that we declare these truths about who Jesus Christ is, and that is communion. And communion is, I would say, our present state of Advent made very real to us. It's this recognition of the wonderful work that Jesus has already done, that has already happened through the Messiah, right? Christ came as an infant. He lived this perfect sinless life that we were created to live, that sin keeps us from living, that he suffered and he died in our place for our sake, that he was raised again on the third day, and that he has conquered sin and death. The Messiah has come and defeated humanity's greatest weakness so that we might live in restored, right, true, complete relationship with our creator. And so communion is this recognition of the wonderful work that Christ has done. But communion is also the recognition of the wonderful work that the Messiah will do once again, that he is returning to do, that he will come to judge the living and the dead, to bring about this ultimate jubilee Christ will come to restore all things, to redeem all things, to rebuild all things, and to establish this new creation that Isaiah and so many others spoke about. And the good news of communion is that it's not just offered to the best of us. It's offered to all people, regardless of our societal standing, regardless of our own personal feelings about ourselves. But it is offered to all who recognize that we are sinners in need of a savior and that savior is Jesus Christ. We are all invited to participate together in this death and resurrection of Christ by coming to the table to be renewed, to be made whole, to be united together.
We confess our faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. God, we gather here at your table. We gather in the name of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set free the oppressed. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He ate with sinners. He established this new covenant for the forgiveness of our sins. God, we live in this hope of his coming again. We live in this peace that only your kingdom can provide. And we gather together now to offer ourselves to you in praise and in thanksgiving. God, would you pour out your spirit on us and on these gifts? Would you make them by the power of your Holy Spirit to be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, the new creation redeemed and restored. God, make us one in Christ. Make us one with each other. Make us one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until he returns. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, in just a second, I'm going to have you all stand up and we're going to, we've done it a few times now, so we should have the hang of it. But this aisle is going to be where you all line up to come and then that's the exit aisle. So if you're over here, get over there as fast as possible. Um, Skyson, would you be willing to help me out with communion? Excellent. Could you come on down? Um, Regan, could you put on some background music? Just so it's not totally quiet. But let's enter into this time of communion, of sharing this meal together and recognizing that all of us are united in Christ, reunited in, reunited in the work, the redemptive and restorative work of Jesus Christ.